Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and if you are familiar at all with your Bible, you will know that Exodus chapter 20 is the uh, book in which we are given what we call the Ten Commandments. Make a long story short, uh, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by God. He went up to the mountain, prayed, uh, the hand of God came down and wrote these commandments on tablets of stone, and these became the beginning uh, of what uh, Moses uh, was led of the Lord to establish for the nation of Israel. And so I want to read to you uh, out of these, uh, out of this passage of scripture. Now, I'm not going to go all Charlton Heston on some of you today. I'm not going Ten Commandments. I'm not going to hold two tablets up today. I'm not going to do, to break down every commandment, but I want you to see something in the scripture that we're going to use to go forward to the New Testament. Exodus chapter 20 and um, verse number uh, 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above that is in earth beneath that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments you shall not take the lord your god in vain for the lord will not Hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is a day of no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Verse 12, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the, long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, You shall not murder. You shall not, come out, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And finally, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor. Now, that is a list 10 commandments there. A lot of us probably have heard that. We've seen a movie with those in there and with them. We've seen them somewhere. We understand those are the commandments, whether or not um, we follow them. But I want to focus really back to that very first one. God is a God of order. Um, God is a God that everything he says is calculated. It's spoken. It's, it's, it, there's nothing random with God. So when God says something first, we need to sit up and take notice of why that's the first one. Not to say that anything after that is irrelevant, but when God speaks, we need to pay attention to what he first says and in this passage of scripture, uh, we read, what is the very first commandment God gives? What's the very first one that all of this is built on? It's this, you shall 
have no other gods before me. You see, back then it was easier to kind of feel that, to figure that out, because at the time, idol worship, worshiping other gods, was pretty easy to figure out, right? There was either a stone or a piece of wood or another temple that you went to and you gave offerings to these other gods. You could see them as far as their stone carving or a piece of wood or something that that represented who these gods were. And so back then, in some ways, it was easier when this was first given to Israel. It was easy for them to see the difference. They had just come out of Egypt. They knew what it was like for the Egyptian gods. You know, Pharaoh was a god. Ra was a god. Uh, all of these other gods that they were dealing with. And so for them, there was some clarity on what it meant to worship other gods or to serve other gods or to put other gods before the God. But today it's gotten a little more difficult for us to be able to distinguish in our own life the things that we're putting before God because we've gotten better and more sophisticated at being able to hide the fact that we're putting things in front of God. We we've become we become more uh, 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 we become uh, what's the what's the best way to say it? Uh, um, we've just gotten better at it. That's not very uh, descriptive, but it's just a it's just an easy way to say it. Sometimes it's better just to come out and say it. We've just gotten flat out better at deceiving ourselves and trying to just in. And, and kind of masking the fact that, man, we go to church on Sundays. Uh, you know, I, I, I pray over everything I eat. I, I think good thoughts. I'm a good person. And therefore, we've, we've found ways to try to cheat the system. But if you would, just for a few moments today, allow God to um, put you to the test. And I don't mean that as a way to say you're a bad person or to sort of point you out and say, you know, what's wrong with you? But but, but maybe are you willing to sort of take a moment today in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all the things that are going on when we really all want to be on vacation today, not sitting here listening to some guy talk to us out of his basement. Hmm. But, but, to, but to stop for a moment and say, okay, God, if you're truly sincere, if you really are sincere, if you really are trying to follow God and seek him and walk with him, would you be willing for the next... 30 minutes or so just to to take a test with me and to really see that if God really, if there is no other another gods before you, would you at least put that to the test? And then maybe today, if you would be honest with yourself, that maybe today God will show you that there are some things that possibly have taken first place in your life. And I don't say that to so that you can feel like, my God, you're 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 horrible. You're wrong. You're just a you're just a terrible person. But maybe so that today you can say, Lord, I want to correct these because I want you to be the head of my life. I want you to be the source of my life. Would you would you do that with me for the next couple of minutes? Would you just be willing to just not not take Joel's opinion, not to take my my test, but to take your life. And to put it up against the mirror of the word of God. And let's see if they match up. Let's let's see if your life matches with what God's saying. And so, well, well the church, a church, this church believes that. Or this church believes that. Or, or a lot of times people say, well, I personally believe that. Or I think. Let's put all that to the side. What you think, what I think, what one believes, what one Let's take all that. Let's just put it right over here. Put it in a nice little box. Tie it up for now. We'll open it up later. 
But for right now, we'll put that over here. Let's just talk straight today and let's see what the word of God says. Deal? I'm just, I'm just going to say in faith, you said deal. Let's shake on it. Uh, no social distancing. We have to, we have to elbow bump. The book of John, uh, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the fourth gospel. It is probably, to, for me personally, one of my, uh, I don't want to say that my, my favorite book of the Bible. How can you pick one book out of the Bible and say it's your favorite when all of them are given to us by God? So I don't want to say it's my favorite book, like I have no use for the other 65 books of the Bible, but of the books that I have read and studied of the Bible over the last number of years, 20 plus years of as I've studied more and more in the Word of God, the book of John to me is just probably one of my favorite books to to study and to glean from because there's just so much depth from the book of John for a lot of reasons. One of them being the fact that the gospel of John was written. And again, this is a debatable thing, um, but somewhere 70 plus years uh, after um, the, uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but allow me just for a minute for those of you that have never heard this. Uh, the Gospels are the account of Jesus' life. It tells us about the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, they're, not, they're not biographies. They're not written to be uh, a word-by-word-by-word, word by word, moment-by-moment, event-by-event recap of Jesus' life. Ultimately, the Gospels are written to tell a story, um, to, 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 to highlight a specific part or a specific aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have similarities in the way they script and the way they lay out their Gospels, but each one of them has sort of a, an agenda and a message they're trying to get across. Ultimately, it's the message of Jesus, but they go about it in very different ways. Just like you and I today, if we all sat down and we tried to tell the same story of the same event, for example, where were you on 9-11? We all experienced the same event, but we share it from very different angles and viewpoints based off our own experiences. That doesn't make it an inaccurate book. Well, you know, why did some people have used the sort of varying degrees of the gospel to kind of argue there's some kind of uh, error in the Bible? Well, that this this gospel, it's not about that. It's each guy was sharing what they felt the, the, the Spirit of God was laying on their heart as they laid out their gospel. But John is, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this similarity to him, but John kind of stands out from the crowd. And part of that, I believe, is that... Um, the Gospels, I said, weren't, weren't biographies. They weren't written to, to capture Jesus' life in a biographical, chronological format. Even though there is some chronologically, chronological order to them in the way they're laid out, they weren't meant to be this biographical recap of the life of Jesus Christ. And when uh, Jesus stood on the mountain that day and uh, ascended into heaven, um, as he was lifted and, and, and disappeared into the clouds, 
uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't standing there at the bottom of the hill selling copies of their gospel, saying, hey, you know, get your gospel here. Find out who Jesus was. You know, get your gospel here. How? They didn't do that. That's, what, that's not what they were doing. That's not the, um, that wasn't the purpose of these books. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written somewhere 30 years, 20, 30 years, depending on who you study, after who, who uh, what theologian you're uh, you're you're reading twenty to thirty, some even estimate forty years after these events. So again, they weren't hot off the press books. But again, John he even took it further. John's book is one of the last books of the Bible written in time period, even though it's in the order of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, and then we have Acts through Revelation behind it. Um, it was uh, it was. It was written in somewhere close to 90 to 100 A.D. I said all that to say, not to give you a history lesson, and some of you have completely tuned me out, and you're probably surfing the Internet. But come back with me here. Um, I said all that to be say when John writes his gospel, he gives us some things about God that aren't just, here's what Jesus did, and this was cool. It was... There's a message in John's gospel that has depth to it. And he tells us some stories and some encounters with Jesus that we don't find anywhere else. And two of the most fascinating ones come from John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are two of the most impactful stories in all of the Bible. They are two of the most uh, impactful stories of the Gospels. They are two of the most uh, impactful moments and words that Jesus ever said that we know and were recorded. These are two huge, massive moments in the Word of God, and they're right back to back. John chapter 3. John chapter 4. One involves a religious leader of great and high standard, held in high regard. The other involves a woman of poor moral standards and poor racial standing at the time. And you begin to look at these two stories, and at first glance, they seem completely isolated. And, and to be frank with you, I've, I've preached and taught from both of these stories separately, not really seeing the connection between both of them until just recently when God began to show me that they really were connected, that there was a reason why John 3 and John 4 kind of back up with these two stories, that they're not just separate events, but there's something common that we find between both of them. And when we begin to look at these two uh, uh, events, one involving this sort of insider, this other one involving this outcast. Uh, you see that as we look at this, we really begin to see two sides of the same coin. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. We're not going to separate these two. We're just going to look at two sides of the same coin. Heads or tails? Maybe that would have been a better title, Heads or Tails. Uh, but that probably would have been confusing if you would have looked at that and go, what in the world is he talking about? So we're going to talk about two sides of the same coin. Because both of these stories deal with a particular sin. Both of these stories deal with a, a particular problem that we all face. 
and both of these come at it from different I, uh, different backgrounds, but we arrive at the same spot. And when it's all said and done, uh, we'll find that um, these stories actually have great significance to our world here in June 14th, 2020, that these are not just fable tales of something long, long ago, but they're actually still of great rele relevance to you and I today. So let's start for a moment if we can. And I know a lot of you have read this story. You've heard it taught. I've taught from this story many, many times. But some of you, you're brand new. We're so glad to have you. And maybe you don't know this story. So allow for me again, once again, for those of you that have heard this, don't tune me out because I guarantee you, you're going to hear something different today than you've heard before. So don't tune me out. But let's lay some groundwork here for a moment. Let's start with the first story, the story of the outcast, the the. The, 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 the story you find in John chapter 4, because it starts off with a picture of sin and moral standing standing that's really black and white. It's really easy to follow. It, it, it's, it's, it's a story of, 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 a, of an encounter that Jesus has with this woman at a well. Um, as he's taking his disciples through the town of Samaria, um, which is just outside of Judea, just above the Jordan River Valley. He's taking his disciples through this town. And when they get there, he says to his disciples, hey, you guys go ahead and go go, um, go into town and get some food, and I'm going to rest here at this well outside the city. And so um, he sits down at this well. He doesn't have a water pitcher or a water jar to be able to draw from the well. And so he sits there seemingly, it looks like at first glance, this is sort of just a random act of Jesus being tired from marching up and climbing up a mountain. But really, this is all strategically planned. Remember I said God never gets caught by surprise. Nothing shocks God. He has a plan and purpose for everything. And so we find that here is God robed in flesh through Jesus Christ, and he's sitting at this well by himself, sends his disciples into town. At first glance, you might think it was just Jesus just that lazy. He couldn't go get his own food, but there was something greater because in just a few moments, a single solitary figure begins to appear on the road and walks towards Jesus carrying a water picture. And we come to find out that this solitary figure is this woman the Samaritan woman. And when she gets to him, he opens the conversation and I read uh, out of the word of God. It says, will you give me to drink? The Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask of him. And he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from. And this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? As did also his son and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water. Welling water, welling up, living water, as the other translations say. Welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have, you've had five husbands, and the man you have not now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. The first thing that strikes us in this encounter is uh, the radical move that Jesus makes by just initiating this conversation. This radical move, just by sitting at this, it doesn't really at first glance, and it wouldn't probably seem to us at first glance to be all that shocking that Jesus is sitting at this well talking to uh, this woman um, but if you know the story, you know the background, you, you, you completely understand that this is completely radical and should shock us because look at her shock at when Jesus spoke to her, her first reaction was, why are you a Jew talking me to me as Samaritans? At the time, the Jews and the Samaritan were, Samaritans were bitter enemies. There was a massive cultural and racial divide that had developed between the Jews and Samaritans. The, uh, the Samaritans were, uh, were a group of people, when, when, when Israel was carried uh, to Babylon, there was a group of, of Jews who stayed behind, and um, they weren't carried off in the Babylon, Babylonian exile, and they began to uh, um, intermarry with the Canaanite tribes around them. They eventually formed this new tribe, um, called the Samaritans, and they took part of the Jewish religion, part of the uh, Canaanite religion, and kind of created this new, this new merged religion, if you want to call it that. That's a very simple way of talking about a very complex subject. So the Jews considered the Samaritans um, racially inferior, and on top of that, they considered them to be heretics. It was just it was it was a bad combination. And so that's why the shock that she is even being talked to by a Jew, uh, much less a man, um, but it was this also. And then on top of that, it was even scandalous for a, for a Jewish man to be seen talking to a woman in public. So you have these major factors here that are taking place. And then on top of that, you, you, you've got this sort of radical moved by Jesus to even initiate a conversation with a woman and with a Samaritan. And then to add to that, we've got this woman who's coming to the well to draw water at noon. Why? Does it strike us as odd right now, right? Because we are not a well-drawing society anymore. We are a tap water. We're a faucet society we don't really live with that mentality anymore. So the significance of the noonday water run is lost on us today because that's not the culture we live in. But at the point in time of this story, the time of day that you went and got water was not at noon. You'd get up in the morning when it was cool, the cool of the day. You'd go draw water. First of all, because you needed water for your household chores. You needed water to do other things around the house, whether it was cooking or other things you were doing. You needed water. So to go at noon 
the day had already been going. I mean, you know, they weren't sleeping in to 9 and 10 o'clock and then getting up and having a late breakfast. They were getting up early in the morning because when you don't have electricity and you don't have uh, a lot of artificial light other than a candle that you're holding, you use every available, every, every available moment of daylight you can. So early rising was not just something that, you know, the early bird catches the worm. They got up in the morning because that was a part of their day. And so you'd go get water first in the day. Number one, it was cooler. Number two, you needed that water. And the third thing was you'd go get water at the place that was easiest and convenient. So at the time, that would have been there was a well actually in the city. So we understand that context. And if you take that and then you realize that, number one, she's coming to the well at noon which is an odd time. Why? And then the second thing, she's coming to a well that wasn't the normal well. In fact, this was a well that was used to water livestock. This was used by the farmers for the people outside the city that were doing uh, other work to use. This wasn't the, 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 the housewife hangout. This is one that wasn't where the normal um, water was being um, drawn from the city. This was a well that was outside the city. So why would this woman sneak out during a time when people were probably in their homes during the heat of the day or whatever they were doing where they weren't watching and she would sneak out and then she would go outside of town versus the one in town? Why? Because this kind of shows that not only was she an outcast because she was a Samaritan, but she was an outcast of the outcasts. She was a moral outcast. She was even an outcast of her own people who were outcasts. So this shows us the, the, the desperation and the, and the condition of this woman and where she was. And, and this is why this is such an amazing moment that we can't lose sight of, especially in our world today where we're finding more ways to divide us versus finding out what can bring us together. And so we find that, that, this, that this is a radical move to see Jesus not only sit down and talk to a Samaritan, not only as a Jewish man to sit down and talk to a woman, but this woman, this woman who is scandalous, who is an outcast of the outcasts. So when he sits down and he talks to her, he is intentionally reaching, deliberately reaching across significant barriers, major Barriers, major walls. In, in this case, he's reaching across a racial barrier. He's reaching across a cultural barrier, a gender barrier, a moral, a moral barrier, barrier. Every barrier you can come up with a time, Jesus in this one move reached across all of them. Can I just say this today for a moment? Antioch West, God has called us to be a church without walls. That's not talking just simply a physical wall mentality, but that's also talking about a church where we don't have barriers. We don't have things that divide us, but we are a church with no walls, whether they're physical walls or walls that we put up or walls that society puts up or walls that our culture puts up. There should be no walls. All walls should come down as as Ronald Reagan said to Mikhail Gorbachev, Mr. President, tear down that wall when he talked about the Berlin Wall. Can I tell you today, can we tear down the wall that divides us? Can we tear down the wall that separates us? Just like Jesus that day reached across and talked to somebody that wasn't his kind, wasn't his type, and that he could have been looked down upon by doing it, but he chose to reach across the wall. Can we truly become a church? 
without walls. Because this shows this, this powerful moment. First of all, it shows one thing. It shows that Jesus really doesn't care what society thinks. He doesn't care what would be the, the, the correct and proper thing to do. Jesus cares more about the individual. He cares about the situation and the individual. We get so caught up on our own self-righteous ideology that we forget that the people that we're judging are human beings that are real people that are have real issues and real hurt and real pain. Jesus could have easily said, I can't talk to her because if I talk to her, someone, first of all, the Jewish culture is going to deny me because I'm talking to Samaritan. And then on top of that, if I talk to her, I may be accused of, of fraternizing with a female in public or even more than that, this woman is bad news. Because even Jesus, even though he was God, he knew it. But even that, even he realized this woman's coming at noon. This is a bad situation. But yet he chose to ignore all that because he wanted to connect with the individual. He wanted to reach into the heart of the person. Because you know what? God doesn't see a faceless crowd, but God sees every single individual. God doesn't see you today, my friend, as a number just clicking on the, the count of those world's population. Well, your number 7,295,682,811. That's how God sees you. God, God sees you today as for who you are, for what you are. He knows exactly where you are. That shows in all this. And what's amazing is this, is that even though the opening part of this and shows that God that Jesus is clearly open and warm and and loving and this 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 shows that he is a god of love and compassion but he also still confronts her even though we we often sort of you know I was talking my wife and I were talking last night about a couple things and and we were referencing just our you know how we view Jesus and the, the very fact is that sometimes we can make Jesus so normal and we can make him so full of love and so full of compassion that we lose the reverence for the fact of who he is it's god this is god do i believe he's personable yes do i believe he is someone who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmity yes but in the end this is still god and so we get sometimes we get so wishy-washy that jesus is love and compassion that we forget that jesus also confronts us with where we are and he does this here and he starts off with the question, right? He talks about this question when, when, when asked for a drink and she responds back, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know how you're going to get a drink. And he responds back with, if you knew who I was and I, if you knew uh, what was going on, you'd ask me for this living water. And if you drank this living water, you'd never thirst again. Now, this, this sort of seems puzzling. What on earth is Jesus talking about? This metaphorical living water which he refers to as this living water and eternal life. Because a lot of us, this image is lost on us. We're in the United States. Water is readily available to us. We've got bottles of water, cases of water. Stores are packed with water. Well, they were. It's getting better. But for a while there, it was tough. But we're not used to, you know, we don't really understand what it's like to really thirst in this country. To know that our body is made up of predominantly water and so... When you live in a very dry and arid climate like that takes place in this area of the world, uh, that without water, there's a very real possibility 
that thirst would become a major issue very quickly. That thirst would be something that they were familiar with because it wasn't like they could just go down to the local convenience store and buy a bottle of water when they were thirsty. If they didn't have a well, if there was no well, and if a well dried up, that would be devastating. Towns shut down. People had to leave areas, not because they didn't want to live there, because if the well dried up, they couldn't stay. And so I've never had this. Maybe some of you have experienced this. But I've never known what it's like to have that agonizing thirst, like where you're so thirsty that your body actually is just beginning to shut down. But I'm sure this was something that a lot of them was familiar with. And I can't imagine what it's like when you're so thirsty and you've never, you know, I know what it's like on a hot day when you're outside and you're just, you feel like you're thirsty and you go and get that cool, refreshing bottle of water, how that makes you feel. I can't imagine if you take that times 50, what that must feel like. So that's the image that I get when he tells her about this. He's not thinking, he's, he, he, he bypasses the natural thirst and he starts going to this spiritual thirst. And, 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 and he's saying, look, I've got something that is so basic and so necessary for your spiritual uh, life that it is equivalent to your spiritual life as water is to your natural life. Something that without it, you're absolutely lost. Something without, you can't even survive. Jesus took this metaphor straight to the source by which every single person on earth has to have two sources. You've got to have breath and you've got to have water. You can last without food for a significant period of time. You can last without a lot of things. You can last without a roof over your head, a bed to sleep on, clothes, whatever. But every person needs air and we all need water. And Jesus took it straight to the source and said, I'm going to say the stuff that, that you should be asking me for is equivalent to the same thing that your body needs to survive. But this whole metaphor is even greater than that. Because Jesus is not just offering her this sort of, uh, 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 what would be the West Sea? He's not just, he's not just telling her that, uh, that what he has is life-saving, that's eternal changing. But he's saying that this water that I'm giving you, it, it, it satisfies you from the inside. That it's not just, he, he's basically saying something along the lines that, that my water, if you get it, it will become a spring of well of living water on your inside. This eternal life will be in you. He's talking about this sort of deep soul satisfaction, this eternal soul satisfaction that's on the inside. This beyond descriptive satisfaction. This contentment, this, this life-changing power that takes place inside of us where it doesn't matter and doesn't depend on what's happening on the outside. Let me ask you this for a moment today, if I can. What makes you happy? What will make you happy? What gives you that satisfaction of life? If I ask you that question today, almost all of us, if we were being honest, we would answer that by thinking or dealing with something outside of us. Some of us today have um, would answer that with uh, thinking of a romantic love. Well, if I could find that perfect mate, that will make me happy. Some of us would go to our career. 
Some of us may go to politics or social issues. If we could see this change, we would feel satisfied. Some of us would probably go uh, to money or material things. But whatever it is today uh, that you say, if I had that or if I get that, then I'll know I'm important. I'll know, I'll know it's significant. I know all, all of that. Whatever that thing would be, more than likely today, it's something outside of you. Something beyond your eternal. And Jesus is addressing that very thing. Because Jesus is addressing that very thing with her because he says, basically, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the deep thirst inside of you. Can I just say that one more time? Can someone hear what I'm trying to say, what I feel like God is saying today, not just me? Hopefully, you're not just hearing my words. You're hearing the words of Jesus Christ that Jesus is saying to this woman, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst deep down inside of you. Nothing. I don't care what it is. Basically saying this, you can splash water on your face, but it can't change the thirst on the inside. You don't need water splashed on your face today. And I say that to say I'm not, I'm not diminishing any pain or difficulty or situation you're going through today. But I've come here to splash water on your face to say, hey, let me help you feel better about your life and splash some Holy Ghost eternal living water on your face today. I'm telling you that if you really want to change, if your life really is going to get better and you're going to find joy and peace and contentment. It can't be because you had some holy water splashed on your face. It's because you found the source has got to be inside. Jesus is really saying something like this. I can give you this water. I can get. I can put something in you. I can put something in you. I can put a well in you that's not from you, that comes from me, that can go on the inside. And if I give you this well, this will be an absolute, unfathomable satisfaction that comes from the very core of your being. Regardless of what's happening on the outside, regardless of circumstances, regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the chaos or the COVID or the protests or what or the difficulty or your financial situation or your or your or your or your marital situation or your family situation or your or your career situation, no matter what's going on, on the inside, if you get this source, if you get this living water, it will change everything. But here's the problem most of us have with grasping what Jesus is saying. This is the problem we all are facing with today. As long as you think there's a decent chance, a likely chance, that you'll achieve some or a portion of the dreams or hopes you have in your life. As long as you think there's a, there's a chance that you'll have success. You'll, you'll take that emptiness in your life, that thirst in your life, and you'll say, that's not thirst for God, that's my drive, right? We say, we, we quantify people today, we say they're driven. Boy, that's a driven person. And we idolize them. 
We idolize the guys that will go into the gym and shoot thousands upon thousands of jump shots to be able to perfect their craft. We'll, we'll idolize the, the, the musicians who will spend thousands of hours working on the particular fingering of a key or fingering of a particular uh, set of notes. And we'll idolize those who will study for hours upon hours to be able to unlock the mystery of the universe. And we call them driven. We want to be driven. We want to drive for success. And we've now taken that emptiness that God put in us, that hunger to be satisfied. We've taken that and now we have made it into something where we can change our world if we would just use that and turn that to good. And, and we ignore the fact that really, in the end, we ignore the fact that the people that have used that drive, that, that, that internal Fire! You know, they talk about get that fire in your belly. Get that fire in your belly. Come on, one more rep, one more day, one more moment. You know, don't let someone keep you down. If you got fired from your job, that's because there's just a better job out there. You know, go start a business, go reach your goals, climb the mountain, span the valley, cross the river. You got this. We've now taken what God put in us, that he put in us for him, We've now changed that and used it for our own benefit to achieve our own goals, to achieve our own success. And as long as you think there's a chance that that dream or that desire to own your own business, to become independent, to get that house, to find that spouse, to get that better career, to get that better car, as long as you believe that will make you and satisfy you, you'll never hear the words of Jesus in this passage. But what's crazy is when you look at people that have had that success, that have used that drive, and you hear their words, it's amazing that we just completely ignore it. For example, there's a Boris Becker who was a tennis champion who won the, the, the Wimbledon tournament that's held every year in England, very prestigious tennis tournament. Boris Becker, who won that, said this, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as a young player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It was the old song of movie stars and pop, pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Here's a guy that's saying uh, that uh, I reached the highest point I could reach, and when I got there... I was so empty. And some of us say, well, you know what? Well, I'd rather have his problem than mine. Well, I, well you know, oh, he had all the success and money and fame. I really have his problem than mine. Well, uh, his problem was the same as our problem. He had all what he thought was all the money, sex, fame, possession, accomplishments he could, and it didn't solve it. And we don't have any of that, some of us, and we're not solved. The difference between us and them is he got what he thought was the answer and found out it wasn't. Some of us are still convinced that we can find the answer outside of God. It reminds me of the, one of the famous quotes that come from the, the, the famous actress Sophie Loren in which she looked back at her life at the end of her career and she said everything, everything, I mean the awards, the fame, the accolades, the marriage, marriages, all the the glitz and glamour. She said this, in my life, 
there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. In my life, there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. That was her summation of her entire life. Everybody has got to live for something. No doubt. But Jesus is arguing this. If he is not the thing you're living for, it will fail you. Number one, it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, whatever that thing that's driving you, that's propelling you, if it's not Jesus Christ, you will tell yourself, you will convince yourself that you've got to have it and it's like there's no tomorrow. And whatever threatens that dream, whatever threatens that hope, uh, you will become uh, fearful of it. Anything that blocks that, you will become angry at it. Uh, Anything that you will deem that will keep you from achieving that, or or even if you say to yourself, "If if I never do this, if I never achieve that, I failed myself, whatever that is, really is the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the power of God and relationship with God that's available. But what's sad is if you do achieve it, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you've expected. It will fail. There's a famous American writer. His name is David Wallace. I don't really know much about his writing, but I found a a saying, a quote of his. Uh, This guy was brilliant. I mean, intellectually, he was brilliant. I think at one time he wrote a, a sentence that was more than a thousand words long. A thousand words. I'm lucky to have a sentence of 10 words, but he was able to put together a sentence of a thousand words. And he was giving a commencement speech at a college. And this is what he says. He said this, everybody worships. The only chance we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they were you, uh, uh, if, if, if they were the way to tap the real meaning of life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and, and sexual allure. You always feel ugly. And when the time and when, and when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before you finally end your life. Worship power and you will always end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll never, you will always need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. There are default settings. Now, what's amazing about this is this. This guy wasn't even a believer. He wasn't a Christian. He he, he wasn't even in any way a a, a religious person, worship God. He he, He wasn't anything. But he was very astute in understanding this. Everybody worships. Everybody entrusts something to be their salvation. Everybody puts something in their life that requires faith. What's even sadder, though, is after a few years after giving this speech, 
David Wallace killed himself. And his parting words are terrifying. His parting words were, something will eat you alive. Today, you, you, you might never call it worship. You may not say that I'm worshiping something, but today it's the default setting of us to worship something. To worship something. You are worshiping and you are seeking whether you realize it or not. But Jesus is saying to this woman, back to the story, he's saying this, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm at the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see the solution must come from the inside rather than the outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you at the end. I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I can feel somebody, God's trying to get you to realize that he's the source. He's got to be the source. We can often forget how thirsty we are because we believe we will fulfill our dreams. And when that happens, it's really easy to walk past Jesus. It's really ignore Jesus. But Jesus had set the hook with her. And she asked this question. This hook is set. What is this living water? Would you give it to me? And then he turns the table on her and says, uh, go get your husband. She replies, I don't have a husband. And he says, no, you're right. And he said, you have five ovens. In fact, the guy you're living with now, he's not even your husband. And it seems like, why did Jesus do all this to expose this lady? What did he do this for? How can he do this? He's, a, he's, he's, he's not, I can't believe this. Why would he do this? Well, that's not his intent at all. His intent at all was to bring her back to the source of the problem. The source of the problem was he was saying is that you've tried to find men to satisfy this internal struggle, this internal issue. He wasn't trying to change the subject. He wasn't trying to expose her. He was nudging her. He was basically saying to this, he was saying, if you want to understand the nature of this living water I'm, I'm trying to give you, you need to first understand how you've been seeking it in your own life. For this example, you said been trying to get it through men, and it's not working, is it? Your need for men is eating you alive, basically what Jesus is saying, and it will never stop. You've already been through five, you're on number six. This desire to fulfill this internal thirst is eating you alive, and it won't stop until you realize the source to your answer doesn't rely on the outside, it's on the inside. Let's go for a minute, I'm almost done here, bear with me. Let's go from the outsider to the insider, the outcast to the insider. We got another story, John chapter 3. It happens right before. I suggest you go back and read it. This is a different one. This is a Pharisee, a, a, a religious civic leader, someone of high standard, high moral standard. And Jesus says to this man, you must be born again. This is opposite of how he treats the woman at the well, sort of. There's a contrast. In the woman at the well, he starts off very gently with her. He eases it into her, but with this particular instance with Nicodemus, he starts straight with the point. He doesn't just ease into it. He goes straight to the point. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've got to be born again. Uh, 
this had to be sort of puzzling to Nicodemus, a guy who had spent his entire life worshiping God according to strict Jewish traditions. He kind of had to be taken back. Born again, you know, this is sort of the terminology. Born again, and we know born again, uh, that's, that's for people that really need it, right? The people, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the, the moral code breakers, the cheaters, those are the people that really need to be born again. In other words, being born again, that's for a certain type of people. You know, not, not me, not a Nicodemus, not the kind of guy that I am. I mean, I, I'm, I, this guy was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was, that's the high court, the high council. This guy was an elite. He was the uh, insider of the insiders. He was the elite of the elite. He was the, the, he was the, the standard of the standards. This guy was an, uh, the insider and the, uh, uh, the, the top of his class. And Jesus said to him, you've got to be born again. That's what, that, 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 that just seems possible. Why does this guy, how does this guy get put in the same category as, as, as the, the, the people that were on the street that day, the beggars, the, the robbers, the thieves? Those are the kind of people that have got to be born again. Not me. I mean, I know the, bro- the broken, the messed up, the, the confused, the hurting, the, those people, they, they not, they, they've, They've, they've got to be born again. But what's interesting is we see in Nicodemus, there was a little bit of open-minded is because he refers to Jesus as rabbi. He refers to this man who we don't know, has no formal training that we know of as rabbi, which is a very high calling, a high word to use to refer to Jesus. He calls him rabbi. rabbi. So it also shows that Nicodemus has this humility and sort of this open-mindedness to him that probably wasn't shared through his peers. So here is Nicodemus, this uh, admirable person, successful, pulled together, disciplined, moral, religious leader, but yet he's open-minded to the truth of there's something I need more than this. So instead of pressing him on the sack, uh, on, on the fact that uh, uh, he had this this uh, um, lack of satisfaction like this woman, he didn't go to the, the lack of satisfaction like he did with the woman. He went another route with him. He was basically saying, all your good deeds, everything you've done to make yourself as best as you can, none of it matters because you've got to be born again. So let me ask you the same question Jesus asked. That man, what did you do to be born? Did you work hard to earn the privilege of being born? Was there any effort in being born? Did it happen due to anything you did, your skill, your efforts? No, none of it. You didn't have to contribute anything to being born. It was a gift. It just happened. That's why Jesus used this terminology with this new life, this new birth process, is this. There's nothing I can do to earn. I can't, I can't be so good that I don't need God. I can't show such a high moral standard that I can say, God, I don't need you. I'm okay. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying no matter who you are, no matter what it is, whether you're the woman at the well who had this internal uh, hunger and thirst that you can't get rid of and so you're trying all these different men and all these different solutions on the outside to fulfill the inside, or you're like Nicodemus who has everything in your life exactly the way it needs to be, both are in the need of the same thing. Both are in need of the same life-saving change. Doesn't matter who you are. 
doesn't matter where you come from. Because ultimately it's this. What is Jesus trying to get to? What is, what is Jesus trying to, uh, what is trying to, what's Jesus trying to, to point out in both of these situations? He's trying to go back to the very first thing that was established in Exodus chapter 20. There should be no other gods before me. Whether that God is something we're doing to achieve a goal or achieve something, or whether that's something we've put above God, whether that goal is our own self righteous attitude, our own self-righteous ways, whatever we're trusting in before our own salvation, for our own contentment, for our own satisfaction, that the source of that is not Jesus Christ. It is wrong, and it won't work. Whatever you're putting in front of God today, whether that, you know, you can put your own good deeds, well, God, I've prayed today. God, uh, I, I've, I've, I've read my Bible. God, I, I, I've, I've, I've fasted this week. I, 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 uh, I've, I've done 10 good deeds. That's putting your good deeds above God's, above God. It's wrong. He's, he's coming from two angles on this. Same coin, two different sides, but the same problem. Both of these had a God problem because both of them were trying to put other things in front of God. No matter how you space it today, uh, no matter how you um, uh, um, uh, 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 um, spin it today, no matter how you try to, 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 uh, to, to, to massage your argument, whatever justification comes down today, the bottom line is all of us, all of us, all of us need Jesus to be the source. No matter if you're on either side of the coin, whether you are on the moral, morally reprehensible or you're from the religious elite, you need him to be that source in your life. You need to address it today. Call it living water, call it being born again, whatever it is. But are you, is he the source of your life? No. The argument today is, well, I, I'm not like that woman at the well. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm, my life's not derailed like that. I'm not quite as smug as Nicodemus. I'm not from the religious elite. Let me tell you a story, and I finish with this. I'll turn off my iPad so you know that I'm serious. A widow woman. She, uh, she has a single son, her only child. And um, she pours everything she can into this child. She, uh, she sacrifices. She works multiple jobs to provide the best life for him. She gives him the best education. She puts the best clothes, best food. She absolutely gives of herself to the point of breaking down her own body to provide the best life she can for her son. She puts him through the best school and eventually puts him through the best college and she says, son, I want you to live the best life. 
I want you to always tell the truth. I want you to go forth and I want you to be successful and I want you to have a great career and all this stuff. I want you, I, I, I've worked and done all this. I've sacrificed myself so that you can have the best life possible. I've given up myself so that you can achieve the highest points of your life. Let's say that son goes off, finishes school, and goes off and achieves all of those things set forth. He lives of the greatest standard. He has the most success. He, he reaches the highest of his profession. Everything he sets off to achieve, he becomes amazing, right? Of course, we should all be proud of this successful life. But what if that same son never called his mom again? After leaving the house as a young boy, setting off to college, he never sent her a birthday card, never returned for a visit, never called her on the phone, never did anything to communicate, to connect with her, to have a relationship with her, never took care of her, never found out how she was doing, never had a communication with her. It was just simply, thanks, Mom. I appreciate you set me up for a great life. Now, I'm going to go live that life, and you should be proud of your boy because I've done everything you've set off to do. How many of us today would say, man, that's awesome? How many of us today wouldn't go, you know what? It doesn't matter what he's done in his life. The fact he treated his mother like that after everything she'd done, after all she did, everything she did for him, how in the world could he do that to his own mother? After everything she sacrificed, she broke her body down. She worked multiple jobs. And yet, even though he's achieved everything that he set off to do, it doesn't mean anything because he's got no relationship with his mother. He's got no love for his mother. We wouldn't stand for that. We wouldn't agree with that. Can I ask you this? If you reach the highest standards of your life, if you if you set off to become the greatest world changer that man has ever seen. If you literally change the world. But you never have a relationship and a connection with Jesus Christ. Do all of your accolades need anything? We're so busy trying to prove to the world and to ourselves how great we are. Even if that means we got to use God to get there. That we forgot that he is the source. That he paid the ultimate sacrifice. That he gave up everything so that we could have all that we are able to have today. That we could have life and life more abundantly. Woe be it to you right now. If Let me ask you this, and I'll stop with this. If every prayer you are praying right now was answered, if every prayer that you were praying right now was answered, would it get close, would it get you closer to Jesus or would it just make your life more comfortable? Look at the prayers you've prayed over the last month. Since the coronavirus began, if every one of those prayers were answered, would it change your world or would it get you closer to Jesus? There's the test. There's the final test. If suddenly God came down and said, okay, today I got it. I'm going to give you all the prayers you prayed. I'm going to let you, I'm going to, I'm going to answer them. Would it make your life just more comfortable, better family, better kids, better life, better job, money in your pocket. Or with those prayers, even if they didn't change your outside, would it give you closer to Jesus? Would, it, would your prayers be about what's going on in your heart 
more than what's going on in your world. Have we all prayed prayers about our world around us, whether it's through the coronavirus or the 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 or the, the racial injustices that we see going on and we all want to help. So we're praying, God, change this, God, do that. And there's nothing wrong with being praying and asking God to, that, that uh, he would bring healing and hope to our country. Uh, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But let me ask you for you, if God answered every one of your prayers, would it just change your outside? Or is there any prayer you're praying right now that's about God change here? Are you just looking for today's cup of water that you've drawn out of the well? Or are you willing today to acknowledge, I need a source of living water? Are you just going to give us your resume of how good you are, how great you are? Or do you acknowledge today that I'm just like everybody else? No matter if I'm perfect or no matter if my life is broken, I still need God. It's easy to see that the drug addict, it's easy to see that the the person today sitting in a prison cell, they really need God. But it's another thing for us to sit in old, good, good old middle-class America with a little bit of money in our pocket, nice car in the driveway, decent house over our head, food in our, food in our, our pantry. It's another thing for us to acknowledge we're no different than that. the person in the prison cell today. I still need God in everything I do. The source, two sides, the same coin. We need Jesus. I need Jesus. There shall be no other gods before me. You're going to worship something. The choice is not to worship. The choice is simply what are you going to worship? Because whatever you worship outside of God will eat you alive. It will tear you apart. But if you worship him, he will be the source of life and truth, joy and peace. It's just your question. The question today, as David Wallace said, it's our default setting to worship something. The question just simply today is, what are you going to worship? Father, thank you for your word today. I know I've been a little long today, but Lord, I have intentionally tried, I have not intentionally tried to add to or take away anything. I've tried to follow you and everything that we that I've said and done. And Lord, I ask you today that of those that are watching and those that will watch. And as we go into our life groups today, that we wouldn't go through this just as an exercise or practice, but that you would reveal our hearts. You would reveal our conditions so that we can drink from that living water, that we can find that born again moment in our life. Even those that have experienced that born again moment already, maybe we need to have a new experience again with you that fresh experience, that fresh encounter with you today. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, our, our, our hearts. Give us the grace to be honest with ourselves. Give us the grace that we can see where we are, that we can know where we are, that you can reveal to us today that you and you alone are the source, that you and you alone are the ones that hold the words of eternal life, that you and you alone are the one that wants to put the well of living water in us. We can't find that satisfaction anywhere else. Father, I pray today that you would give us the grace to show us our hearts, reveal to us our conditions, not to expose us, not to shame us, but so that you can give us the grace to change us, that we can find you in a way like never before. I pray all these things, I speak all these things today in Jesus' name. 
in Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that somehow you are touched and blessed by what you've heard and that it's challenged you to take another step closer in knowing Jesus and watching, walking with him. You're going to worship something. The question is, what are you going to worship? Can I just challenge you today? Choose him. Two sides, same coin. One Jesus. God bless you.